Yeah, what you been up to, man? Not too much. How about you? I'm trying to help Blaine open her shop and manage my own business at the same time, so... Oh, Jesus, dude. <sighs> yeah. Right now, I'm mitigating between contractors, landlords, the government, insurance companies, uh, and the health department. Yeah. Which I... You already know my disposition. I literally hate all of that. So. I'm, I'm sure, you know, a tattoo shop is super easy to... To open and they don't have any kind of like ridiculous regulations for it no no not at all and let me tell you uh insurance companies and landlords and stuff they love hearing that you're going to try and open a tattoo shop mm. i'm sure they don't resist in any way not sketchy at all this is oh, my man. life <laughs> darren how old are you uh 32 okay actually that how old are you I just turned 37. I don't know how old you guys are. Dude, that's crazy. And Cosper's like 23, 24. Yeah, yeah they're like way young. <laughs> Dude, I was such a dumbass at their age. That's what I was thinking the other day. I was like, I forget what the context even was. I think I was like talking to people in the Discord. And I was saying like, you know, it's crazy. Like Cosper, with the stuff they're doing right now, like, again, compared to what we were doing at that age, it's like, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Bright future ahead of them. Yeah, I think it was just because I was thinking about the book and how I was like, fuck, this dude's got like three books under his belt and he's like five years younger than me. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Hopefully I can get this like podcast off the ground or some shit. But um, uh, oh, I also wanted to tell you, you fucking killed it reading aloud, dude. Like I went like constantly bragging about my skills at reading aloud and you were like way better at that. I'm going to make you do that on the podcast now. You're going to be doing a lot more of that shit. I had to do it for a living for a long time. That's that's. I mean, but you're. I was thinking the same thing when I listened to your vo- voiceovers. Like, you could definitely do audio readings if you wanted to. Well, I've always wanted to. I wanted to do yeah. that since I was in like high school, and I was like, that would be a really cool job to have. I feel like it's difficult to get into, but like, yeah, that'd be sure as hell better than swinging a hammer for sure. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, listening to yours doing chapter two, that was great. I was really enjoying that. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I had to do it for a long time when I was an audio engineer for a living. Um. Mm-hmm. But then one of my friends who just he was like a guitar player and just totally smoked my ass on that. Like he does voiceovers for TBS now oh, and shit. like FX and shit. So it'd be like, you know, watch Archer Saturday night, like that kind That's of shit. Awesome. I'm like, where the <laughs> fuck did this come from? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. Let me see. Let me get my Word document open here. The other thing I was noticing after writing some short notes on the questions that you, um, you put in the chat for the outline. It's funny because I'm writing and then thinking a lot of the same things that you said in the book. So I end up coming to a lot of the same conclusions. Like when you ask something like, what is the result of corruption or what is the result of like having only two parties and uh, stuff that's like towards the end. And then the way that you're saying in the chapter that it results in like this just destabilization of a society and people losing faith in the institutions and everything. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much uh, where it ends up. Like what was the uh, what was the question I'm even thinking of? Uh, how does absolute dualism affect rational thought? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, honestly, like, I have problems with democratic centralization anyway, which is like, you know, authoritarian left. But mm. I feel like the two party system in the US ends up having democratic centralization anyway. But because it's not overtly said, it's used for like the most wrong reasons it could possibly be used for. Like, mm-hmm. You know, Pelosi, whether or not she says so, agrees with, like, the corporate welfare state. Right. 
like to me, that's still democratic centralization, but because they're dishonest about it, anything that's positive that could come out of that ostensibly from the leftist perspective is sort of undermined. <laughs> so you get the worst of both worlds, yeah. Right, yeah. You get like the shitty, the shittiest parts of it um, without like the direct democratic parts of it. Because like, don't get me wrong, I think if from the off-left perspective, if somebody was like, yeah, we should put like racist groups in jail mm -hmm. and then have everybody, you know, forced to comply with that, I'm not sure I'd have a problem with it. Yeah. If the Democrats were suggesting that, I would be all for it. I would be like a hardcore Democrat. I would be like, I'd be getting that Pelosi tattoo that Sterling wanted. Still, but they're not going to we're not going to get any of the benefits from it. We're not going to get any like actual good things. They're just going to lock up, you know, brown people from Mexico. Was he really going to get that? I think that was, I'm assuming that was a joke. I can't always tell with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if he would join us for a Patreon episode, he could tell us. But uh, something is too cool for Tuesday nights. Come on, buddy. All right, let's get into it then. Are amazing. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Turn Up Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him, and tonight I'm here with Jaron, he, him, and tonight we're going to discuss chapter two of his second book, The Politics of Fear. And uh, so yeah, we'll just get right into it. If you've uh, been keeping up with the Patreon episodes and the book, you've probably just listened to Jaron's reading of chapter two. Great job, by the way, Jaron. Fantastic reading. I really enjoyed it. Um, so let's get right into the questions and uh, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So just as a preface, uh, chapter two deals with the, the things that we do fear. So we're moving on from identity and into the tangible things that cause fear. Um, so this was just a series of things that can elicit, uh, you know, fear in our psyches and, uh, you know, for our communities, for ourselves, things like that. So um, I think the first thing, just kind of diving right into it, my first question here was, we bring up the, the subject of like acceptable margins for what we debate or for socioeconomic groups. So sort of bookends for what is perceived to be uh, reasonable in a national discussion. So what acceptable margins exist here in the United States and where are the ends of publicly acceptable debate? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think a lot about what people consider normal and how what we consider normal is considered so outlandish and you know far left and seems so reasonable to us like it seems so reasonable that marginalized people should not be persecuted that you should have some sense of equality uh in economics and democratic control of labor and production and everything and those seem like completely alien ideas in this culture and that's because it's so far right it's so capitalist it's so ruthless and so it's always amazing to me like the things that people just accept they accept the homelessness crisis they accept the student debt thing they mm -hmm. accept not having universal health care they just accept all this shit and they submit just because of pure ideology but i mean you did make you made a good point in like the very first uh, part of this chapter and i wanted to quote it so i wrote it down here quote for those in positions of corruption the only way to perpetuate their rule is to make the oppressed believe in their systems and i thought you said like that sentence really says a lot because like 
I think either before this or later in the chapter, you explain how the hatred and bigotry um, is actually all a byproduct of the system of corruption. Like in order to emotionally justify living in a position of comfort at the expense of people right in front of you, talking about like during times when there was slavery mm. uh, or indentured servitude or whatever, you have to create this system of racial bias to deny that those people are human so that you can live with yourself while you're doing this. And I think the ingenious move of late capitalism is to keep that exploitation out of sight and therefore out of mind. And the genius move of even later capitalism is to let you know about the exploitation. Like you know about it online, you can see it on the news and you can yell about it and scream about it all day online or even in the streets. And yet you still have not only zero power to affect it, but also no practical option except for to support it with your time and your energy and your money because you are living in capitalism. You have no choice but to buy products of that ex exploitation. But you feel like you're helping, or at least you feel like you're morally superior to like the Trumpies who deny or even defend the exploitation, even though you're both actively keeping it alive, whether you want to or not. And then yeah. to even like really talk about it or to begin to address it would be the limit of the margins of what's acceptable. That's super well put. Yeah. And I mean, it, it touches on like the, the, oh, you have an iPhone argument. Mm -hmm. Or even, you know, when we talk about like, you know, this person is posting on Facebook that they're homeless. Why the fuck do they have a phone if they're homeless? Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. And it, it's exactly what you were saying. It's like, we know that smartphones come from a supply chain that is predatory to all of the client nations that put effort into putting that smartphone together and getting the raw materials for it. Doesn't really matter what side of the table politically you sit on, you know that it, that smartphone is a reasonable price somewhat for a reason and it's due to exploitation, but mm -hmm. you can't live without one. Like I, I, I cannot work. Literally, my life would be a living hell if I didn't have this little supercomputer in my pocket because that's the status quo at this point. Yeah. So like I, I have to, you know, I, I think Apple is a incredibly corrupt company and I'm forced to do business with them on a daily basis because of the, uh, the margins, not just of discussion, but of like praxis. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm posting leftist memes from a phone that was put together, you know, through a series of incredibly immoral means. Yeah. I mean, I'm not much better. I have a Huawei phone. I guess that uh, helps support the CPC in some way, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's still, it's still really not like any more ethical. Like <laughs> Ward even made a meme about it. He put me in it earlier today. It was like um, <laughs> when conservatives say you can't be a communist because you have an iPhone and then you say, actually, I have a Huawei. <laughs> so fuck off. Like. God, he is so quick on the trigger with that. Oh, he's great. Yeah. I think one of the big ones for me too, like as I write all these questions without really having an opinion on them, they're just kind of thought provoking to me. But the big one to me is, we cannot and will not have discussion about rights to private property. Mm -hmm. It just won't happen. Like you will not see on CNN or Fox or on the congressional floor, anyone calling into question the rights to private property. I'm not talking about personal property, private yeah. property. Right, right. <laughs> no one is going to be like, hey, maybe one person shouldn't own all of these Amazon warehouses. Maybe BlackRock shouldn't own 30% of the houses in the country and yes. single-handedly <laughs> cause this housing bubble that we're seeing that nobody can buy houses. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I mean, that ties back into fucking Pelosi. Like, she finally 
says she cares about the eviction moratorium after it's already ended. And mm-hmm. after BlackRock bought up 30% of the housing market of which she's a beneficiary, she receives right. money from black market or black rock. Um, that's a huge one to me though. It's like, we can't have a national discussion about private property rights because that attacks the very foundation of what Americans perceive freedom is, which ironically, that's what prevents us from having freedom is this just cult of ownership of private yeah. property ownership. Yeah. I mean, I've, I still am trying to, I'm racking my brain trying to figure out exactly what it is about uh dunk that drives me so crazy when I see his shitty takes and like what I think is even going to be productive about like talking to this dude and why I get so mad that he won't come on here and debate me and like expose his shitty ideas. But it's like, I'm trying to think of like what I could say to easily break it down because I still, I feel like it's the inner lib in me where I feel like I still have this fantasy that I'm going to be able to break it down simply enough that his like pea brain will understand it. And then he'll stop being like such a chud. But I know that that's not the case. Like, it's just, it's just who he is. Like he can't help it. So it doesn't matter how, but I still, I think about it nonetheless. And I think like one of the ways I've come to breaking it down is um, when you have these guys who think that personal property, I mean, private property is the ultimate freedom. And that like all other freedom comes from that, that and AR-15s. Um, it's like they've gone so far in the direction of their oppression that they've like, they've literally just gone up the asshole, like straight up the asshole of their oppressors. Like they're kissing it so much that that's, they've just gone way up inside. And it's like, they get on one hand that, you know, government is, is bad. Like the way that our government operates and capitalist government, because it like even dunk will lash out about corporate agenda. Like if I say anything about COVID being real or vaccines actually stopping it, he's saying I'm spewing a corporate narrative. I'm like, you were the capitalist here. Like you are the capitalist. You're saying corporate, like it's a bad word. Like what, do, what is this world that we're living in here where you're saying that? And he's like, Oh, just because uh, he's like, yeah, well, they, they don't see it that way. They think that the modern version of capitalism, he calls the U S fascist, but not for the reason that we do. He calls it fascist because he says that the government is enabling corporations because it's the corruption of authority. Whereas if the corporations just didn't have the government tool to use to, at their whim, that things would be better if they actually had, if we had free markets and I guess people would compete and take those companies down. But it's like, really, they would just find other ways to, the mask would drop. Like, because there is a government that could potentially hold them accountable, because there are police that could potentially hold a corporation accountable if they do something. They don't just hire their private mercenaries and take over property and do outright imperialism like the old days. You know, and because there's some kind of threat of like enforcement of actual law. But if the government were not there as like a buffer, they would just do that. And nobody with their AR-15s would stop them. Like, I, I just, I don't know. Also, I I'm it, definitely went off a tangent I didn't expect to. No, that's fine. Because honestly, Dunk, Dunk does touch on, well, first off, I love watching you smoke him because he's a fucking idiot and doesn't even realize how badly he's getting owned. It's entertaining <laughs> to me. But I also know it's infuriating because he pisses me off for a variety of reasons. But like, that is sort of the crux of it is like he... People, people in that position, the libertarians and the, the ANCAPs or whatever, they are still within that bookend margin that I'm talking about. That's exactly mm-hmm. what they can't break through and, and understand and accept. Because, I mean, in Dunk's case, okay, let's say we got rid of government. All the local regional lords, feudal capitalist lords, are going to get together at the fucking country club and come up with a bunch of communal rules that everyone has yeah. to follow for their own betterment and not the people's betterment, the capitalists' betterment, and have their own pseudo uh, womp womp government 
that emerges from that. Exactly. Only worse than what we already have. And, you know, in case in point with Dunk, like I've, you know, he wants to, to, this is completely removed from the question, but, you know, as anti-vaxxers are saying like, oh, see, now we have to get another shot for, you know, we'll have to get boosters and all this. And I'm like, you know, honestly, Big Pharma probably loves your asses because you are giving yeah. them the right and, and the need and the market to keep making vaccines probably for decades now because yeah. you didn't get the immunity first. Like you think you're rebelling against them, but what you're really doing is making sure that they have a viable market for God for knows long how time. long. <laughs> like we because we couldn't just eradicate this yeah. virus. Like, no, you're, you're way too in it. But going back to the question, like, um, Oh, I did want to say like, just in relative to the vaccine, like, doesn't it just make more sense that, China, whether the virus was grown in a lab or just was a natural occurrence, doesn't it make more sense that they would be behind the anti-vax, anti-mask propaganda in order to kill more Americans, especially right-wing Americans, like the ones that are most likely to oppose communism? Doesn't that just make more sense than that it's a fake virus to take down Trump and ruin the American economy that for some reason the entire world participated in that hoax? Like, I feel like my theory makes a little more sense. Like, A lot of things make more sense. But yeah, even that one. I wanted to just also touch on one more thing, like, regarding the being so far up the assholes. Like, I want to um, clarify, first of all, the reason we mentioned Dunk so much is because he's literally the only right-wing person I even have any contact with. Like, I've cut all the ones I've known in my personal life out of my life. I don't fucking talk to them. Or if I do talk to them, I'm not going to talk politics. Um, and then online, I don't let right-wingers on my page. I just block them. He's the only one. And since we had him on the podcast, I, I see his posts. And so that's, I must come off like I'm, like, obsessed with this Dunk dude. But really, it's just that he's the only libertarian or right-wing person that I see, and his takes are trash, and it drives me nuts. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly why it makes me so angry. But I think it's just he's basically on this podcast the stand-in for all libertarians and right-wingers because yeah. he's the only person whose takes I'm seeing. I but mean, dude, he, he does I'm the saying, poster child takes. He does the banana island, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, But I mean, again, so just going back to them being so cucked, it's like, just as you were describing how women and minorities and indigenous people had to be convinced that they were inferior in order to tolerate this system of corruption, that's exactly what conservative cucks have to be brainwashed into. They have to simultaneously, like, brag about how hard they work and how much money they make while justifying some billionaire whose quote unquote work is going to meetings and making decisions about how to best squeeze labor out of other people. And they have to justify why that person deserves their millions more than they do themselves and it's pathetic but um as, well, but it's also just the same as like go ahead sorry oh no go ahead you're, you're in the middle of a thought well no i mean i have a, another separate thing just about trump supporters how they enjoy his corruption and how it's similar to that same kind of cuckoldry but go ahead oh like how they they perceive his corruption is like no he's just smart for evading his taxes that kind of thing well because they, they think it benefits them too like they think it's like corruption's okay if it benefits the right but like when Democrats do it, it's evil and satanic. And like if Hillary, Obama or Biden are like the idea of them thinking that it was a good talking point to say Biden is the most corrupt politician or Biden's family is the most corrupt political family in history when, you know, in the run up to this election and everything. It's like, yeah, maybe. But you're not like voting for a guy who's not corrupt. Like, what do you think you're doing with Trump? Like, he's, he's very blatant about it, too. Like, Yeah. Well, and, you know, the thing, too, is there's there's a connection here between the cuckoldry and then also the blaming of women and minorities and things like that, because, you know, what, what is the end game of when you won't question billionaires, when you won't question corporate hegemony, 
and it ends up, you know, a couple decades later, fucking the national economy. The job market is gone. It's moved overseas as per corporate agenda. Um, wages have stayed the same because of corporate lobbying and the same people that you support, like Jeff Bezos, because you imagine one day you might be like him, end up ruining the economy. But you don't want to wrap your head around that. You would rather blame the immigrants. You would rather blame the inner city black community. You would rather blame mm. blah, blah, blah and blah, blah, blah. Um, so like the, the connection between refusing to see corruption and then blaming the other for said corruption is tangible. And that's really, if you distill right-wing ideologies and xenophobia, that's the only thing they have in the playbook is they let private industry get into government. That's the definition of fascism, by the way, is private cartels working with government. Mm -hmm. Literally the economic definition. They let it but fuck the economy until it gets so bad that shit starts going down and then they blame this group of people over here. That's the only thing they do. Right. That's the only thing they have in the playbook every time. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just so, it's so trite, but they fall for it every time because they don't learn from history. Like as much as they like to pretend that they're the ones who are talking about the true history of anything. I did write down this other thing here. I kind of just wanted to mention a very literal take on your question that started things off, which was, um, corruption uh, regarding acceptable margins, what margins exist here in the USA. Like I took, when I first read it, I took that very literally. I'm like, what is the level of corruption in the USA and what is the acceptable margin for it? And but the oh, first God. example I came up with was just that, uh, well, what came to mind immediately was uh, bribing police because, and I could be wrong about this because I've never really been to Europe, but I get the impression that it is more common in Europe for you to be able to bribe your way out of a ticket or something uh, directly one-on-one -on -one with a police officer than here in the U.S., because I just literally have never once heard of anyone successfully doing that here in the U.S. Whereas if you talk to people in different countries in Europe, they'll say that that is at least a possibility or something that can happen. Interesting. But what I do think happens more often here in the U.S. is that entire police departments get bribed or like several officers will get bribed in a department, usually by like the mafia or somebody who's politically connected or a business even. Mm -hmm. And that's the direct corruption that you would see in like, on like a small town level. And I feel like that's kind of indicative of how even with corruption, the U.S. leaves the working class out of it. Because I would love to be able to like bribe oh, myself out of it. Wouldn't that be great if you could just like pay this cop 50 bucks and get out of the $100 ticket? I would yeah. totally do that. That'd be fine yeah. for me. But that's not even the thing I can do here. And I feel like in other countries, that's at least possible. Well, and that, you know, for American police, it's, it's a different structure just generally because, I mean, you know, you've posted memes that say this is like, oh, well. 20% of Soviet Russia's population was in prison. Just kidding. That's the United States. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> we, we have cops in prisons for a different reason than almost anywhere else in the world, which is why it's so hyperinflated is we, we literally have modern day slavery. That's what it is. Yeah. But, you know, I think that actually kind of brings us to the next question pretty smoothly, actually. So this one this one's an interesting kind of thought experiment to me. So given that the U.S. gained its power and wealth through indentured servitude, what kind of precedent did that impose upon the world as the U.S. became dominant? And I'm referring to specifically after World War II when it was, you know, the U.S. model of militarism was accepted and along with that, the economic models that it had it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the simplest way to describe it would be just the race to the bottom. Because if you have these corporations who are holding all the power and they're just able to seek cheap labor 
you know, it's much easier for them to relocate than it is for labor. So you just get this labor competing internationally with corporations who are really not competing on that same level. And so it's a race to the bottom for labor. And I remember when this first like came into my head as a concept was I was arguing with a, a conservative relative, like a boomer age. <laughs> and he was, this was in like 2012. And I was like a liberal then at the time. And I'm asking them like what they expected to be done about companies taking their factories and moving them out of the country to find the cheap labor. And this was all in the context at the time of like, I think Occupy Wall Street, mm -hmm. or there was some kind of like bill that was in the process to like hopefully help workers or something like a minimum wage thing, probably. I don't even remember what it was, but this person was obviously against anything that was going to raise the standard of living for working people. And I asked how that wouldn't just create a race to the bottom. You know, if, if labor is forced to compete while companies just can relocate and find the cheapest labor whenever they want. And he had no answer. He just said, I, I don't know what the solution is, but I just know we have to keep doing capitalism and avoid socialism. He didn't say it in those words, but if, essentially he said that, like, I know we have, like, the solution is free markets and the solution isn't socialism or anything that would actually directly help working people. Compelling. <laughs> it just was eye-opening for me because that's the level of cult devotion that we are dealing with with these people. Yeah. Um, like, they can, they can even recognize the problem. They can see the problem right there in front of their eyes and they don't have any alternative or any solution but regardless, they're still going to hold fast to whatever helps the rich. And again, it's just pathetic. It's just cuckoldry. Yeah, well, and I think that, that you know, post-World War II, the emerging victors, the Soviet Union and the U.S., and the resulting Cold War, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that the Cold War itself wasn't serious. There was proxy warfare that was just horrific all over the world. And I mean, even in a lot of African countries like Angola, there are still landmines going off from mm -hmm. the proxy war between the United States and Russia there. So it was very serious. But I think, moreover, it was a war of ideologies. And with the U.S. emerging from that during the, the Reagan-Thatcher era, which we spent three episodes talking about, because that deserves three episodes, Yeah, you know, that's when we really got what you're talking about is, again, property owners trying to figure out who can pay workers the least and remove their standard of living the least while still having them work to attract this business of manufacturing. And we still see it even today with, you know, China is finally trying to improve worker standards, improve worker wages, and correct some of the mistakes that it made after its WTO acceptance, which I think is great because there were some bad working conditions in China and they're, they're making efforts to make it better. But the system is rigged against them because all of these Vietnamese manufacturing hubs now are saying we can do this 15% cheaper than China. Because they're willing to do, yeah. Because they're willing to do less. And China doesn't want to lose business because China needs to have a strong economy if it's going to compete with the United States. But at the same time, it's being undercut in right. the way that you're talking about by Vietnam. So mm -hmm. everything that was, you know, that we saw made in China, made in China, made in China, it's going to be made in Taiwan, made in Philippines, made in Vietnam, made in Burma, made right. in places where we can do that race to the bottom still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people really underestimate the effect that the Soviet Union existing had on American labor and just labor in all of the West, because there was an alternative option that you could at least point to, even if it wasn't perfect, even if it wasn't like, you know, the glorious communism we pretend it is when I'm memeing. Not so much That's you, but me. That's a good point, though. But like, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's a real thing. And I feel like I'm just coming to that realization even in the last year or so, like how big of an effect that had. And like somebody yesterday 
I posted that meme about Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. Um, I guess for anybody unfamiliar, it was Mo kicking Barney out of the bar from The Simpsons, and <laughs> Mo is labeled Francis Fukuyama, and Barney is labeled history. And so he gets rid of history thinking it's over, and then Barney sneaks up right behind him, because history never ends. It's not how fucking time works. It's not how humanity works. It's like, until the species ends, that's when human history will end. But it's like, somebody asked in the comments, so like, can, can somebody explain who Francis Fukuyama was? And I was oh, trying to Christ. think of how I would even say that in an Instagram comment, and explain why that meme is funny if you don't know the context behind it. And it's like, I mean, really, if the shortest way, I guess, if I were to try to explain it would be to say that Francis Fukuyama was writing after the end of the Soviet Union, because that was when there was no other alternative to capitalism. And that's when liberals essentially dominated the entire cultural, political and economic discourse. And so every country is essentially capitalist or on the way to it, or it may be communist, but it's so you know, weak as far as global powers are concerned that it's not even worth considering. So you had this hegemony of the U.S. and the U.K. and I guess, you know, maybe Australia or whatever other, you know, imperialist countries would be included in the general capitalist West. And there is no other option. And so now this is when labor is at its worst. And it took decades for it to get this bad. But we are seeing the result of that when mm -hmm. there is no other option but capitalism. Capitalists can do whatever the fuck they want. And there's nothing you can do about it. And our only hope, and that's, again, really why I support China so much is like, we can only hope that they present the alternative, especially as climate catastrophe gets worse, and they actually do invest in infrastructure, and they do invest in taking care of their citizens, and they provide an alternative for just letting people hang, like America has done in this whole pandemic and every financial crisis. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, honestly, I hadn't even thought about it that way, but I think you make a really good point. So what you're saying, though, is, is during the Cold War era, tell me if I'm, like, misinterpreting this, because it's a really good point, is... The, the welfare state of the 50s on up until, you know, late 70s, the strong social programs, um, the antitrust laws, the, you know, things like that were sort of a bargaining chip in a way to make liberal. Sorry, breaking up again. Say, uh, Is that to, kind of what you were saying? To make to make liberal democracies seem appealing you, you know, in, in like sort of comparison to the proletariat in Russia or the USSR, like, you yeah. know, liberal democracy is good because you have a pension, because we have strong social programs, because we have antitrust laws. And then once the Soviet Union fell, that's when all hell broke loose and they, they really just started bleeding all of that. Is that kind of what you were saying? Oh, yeah, exactly. Because they could. And that's, you know, it's, it's funny. I actually said that I think it was in the intro to the Reagan episode, your first episode with us, where I said, the way that capitalism is supposed to work is you're supposed to have a bunch of wealthy people or not a bunch of but a very select few wealthy people and then everyone else working to keep them in that position. And then for this time, we had a thriving middle class in America. And it was because of World War II, partly, but also that the U.S. had the greatest welfare state it ever had at that point. And a big reason for that was communist China and the Soviet Union, both like offering this alternative and making real changes in material conditions for working class people and marginalized people. Mm -hmm. And so when you have that alternative, you have to at least, you know, it's essentially capitalism on a grand scale, like the U.S. is trying to compete. And then once you don't have that alternative anymore, yeah, there's no need. The mask just drops. There's no need for the competition. Yeah. Well, especially if you can convince everybody that, you know, Bezos going to space is a good thing and maybe you'll be him one day or whatever the fuck. <sighs> but it's so pathetic, man. Well, and, you know, this is dissociating from the question uh, a little bit, but I guess not entirely. I think that 
one of the things that the United States has really been sort of the cheerleader for is this different perception of success that fortunately I see a lot of younger people breaking from, which is, you know, the cult of celebrity, the cult of control and of ownership. And the idea that, you know, we want to do this nine to five grind so that we can own as much as possible and take the lavish yacht trips and, mm -hmm. you know, live, live the celebrity lifestyle or get famous and have adoring fans. And I think that the United States has really led a charge in the direction that that's what we should all be trying to attain, mm -hmm. which is inherently capitalist. And it's also very unhealthy. And it, it hurts you when you believe that. And I think that it takes away from the real joys that we all have in common experience as human beings, which is having a day off with friends or raising kids or you know, getting a good meal in you or having a couple drinks or, you know, just very simple things. Or even if you enjoy mm -hmm. ownership, like, you know, this is something that I've had to learn just in the past couple years getting into my 30s is like, when I just have like a nice dish set that costs, you know, a medium amount of money and I, I really like the way that, uh, that they're made and everything like that, I, I want to keep them clean. To me, that brings me joy yeah. that I, I own this thing and I should take care of it. Like, that's a joyous thing. You bougie fuck. Yeah. But I mean, dude, like, I can have my personal property. That's just it. No, I can't deny I like that stuff, too. Yeah. You know, I can have my bicycle. I can have my car. I can. That's the irony of, of people resisting leftist ideology so much is like, no one wants your shit. Right. Unless you're a yeah. capitalist. Which none of you are. Well, that's what's so frustrating, I think, about it. Because when we were talking about the space thing and billionaires, I was thinking, you know, what's more frustrating about this whole bullshit message of why you should support Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson going to space because you might get on the Elysium someday, which you fucking won't. And neither will your kids or grandkids. Like, I'm spoiler alert. It's not going to fucking happen for you. You're not in that club. Yeah. Um, also, I just straight like, up don't want that. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather just, like, make the Earth habitable. I feel like that's still a, a goal we should strive for and we could do. But... What's super frustrating about it is also that there is, again, China with the opposite example, where they're sending like farmers into space. They're launching things and they're doing actual, you know, work that is making progress as far as advancing science. And they're doing this with people who are like the children of actual peasants. And that goes mm -hmm. unnoticed. People in America don't even know about that. And the information's out there. It's not being hidden. As much as we talk about the censorious internet, like that's not, you can find that. And the same thing with, um, uh, what was the thing that you just said about, um, how leftists don't want to take your shit. It's like, yeah, leftist ideology is very, it's easy to read. Like you can find it. You can, you just have to seek it out. And then you would find out that all these fallacious things that you believe about commies killing billions and wanting to take your toothbrush. Like it's very easy to debunk that. You just have to, uh, I don't know, not like even just a cursory search. Yeah. It's really not that, that hard. And, you know, again, just sort of re celebrity culture and re-opulence and all that, like it's an extension of this like hyper-individualism that the United States has traditionally been behind. And I, I don't know how intentional that was, or if it just sort of came naturally with the territory of global capitalism, maybe a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that, that is the mentality that makes you hyper-protective of your things, that makes you headstrong, that makes you not appreciate the normal things that human beings can appreciate and 
to add to your point about China, which is pretty rare for me, but like the thing about capitalism and technology, whether you want to praise Elon Musk or Bezos or Branson or whoever the fuck, is I'm not going to say that capitalism doesn't create technological advances, but I am mm. going to say that every time it does, those are never for you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a few generations later, once it gets cheap enough, but uh, it's usually just used to surveil you and, yes. you know, scrape more data from you to get better ways to figure out what you're thinking about so that you can get an ad for it on your phone the next time you open Instagram. Yeah. And, the, and if you don't think communism can be, or, or any other setting can be technologically advanced, like seriously, I shit on the USSR all the time, but... <laughs> the amount of science that came out of that country is astounding. Yeah. Like we use modern inventions, like LED lights. Those came from the USSR. I didn't know that. Every time you use an LED, that came from the USSR. How common are those nowadays? They're fucking everywhere. They're all the best lights. They're all the best lights. So like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of you know, detracting, but uh, we can move on to the next question if you want to. I was going to say, we've uh, sidetracked ourselves yeah. quite a bit on this one. We should move on to, uh, can nationalism ever be a positive thing? Yeah. Which is a good can one. Can it? <laughs> I mean, so I've definitely covered this a couple times. This came up in the Cuba episode, specifically talking about Cuban nationalism and why it's not the same as like white nationalism or American nationalism. And mm. it really just comes down to colonized people versus colonizers. And just to rehash it again, that is the core difference. It's like if you are a colonized people, it's fine for you to be nationalists and unite behind your national boundaries so that you can resist those colonizers and hopefully overthrow them. But that's very different if you are the white people, the settlers, the immigrants to a country, and your nationalism is predicated on exterminating the people that were already there. Very different, totally different forms of nationalism. One is very predatory, one is aggressive, the other is defensive. I feel like it should be very easy to understand, but it's not something that really gets talked about. And I think that's because the far right has been so successful in co-opting nationalism completely that any nationalism, whether it's black nationalism or anything, gets lumped in with them. And so you can't really espouse it and be considered a leftist or just, you know, you, you get associated with them whether you're whether you are or not. I think that's actually a pretty great diagnosis. The only thing I would add is like in in Europe where there's a lot of nationalism um, against like Syrian refugees and shit, obviously those Europeans are in their quote native countries. And then we have Syrian refugees coming in and stoking European nationalism. But at the same time, right. you wouldn't have those Syrian refugees if you weren't bombing Syria. So I would say the logic. No, it actually fits into the solid. formula pretty yeah. well. <laughs> That's the whole thing. It, like it, the only way that the it's only stokes European nationalism because they're not realizing their role in that. They don't realize that their taxes are funding the bombs that cause those refugees to show up in their country to begin with. And so right. they it, but again, there's so many so much of political ideology goes back to lack of understanding of some just basic things about your country's foreign or domestic policy. I thought it was just kind of an interesting thing to think about because you're right, like historically some of the most successful leftist movements have been nationalist in nature in, mm -hmm. in sort of a reclaiming kind of way. And at the same time, some of the most, oh, sorry, you're breaking up again. Also happened. So the last thing I got was at the same okay. time, some of the most, Oh, at the same time, some of the most dangerous right-wing ideologies are predicated on nationalism. Yeah. But 
even at the same time, I think that when leftist revolutions happen with nationalism, there is still this idea of international cooperation. It's not as much about protectionism Mm -hmm. uh, from the other necessarily, as it were. Like, you know, leftist ideologies, be it anything from off left to anarchist or whatever, have this sort of idea of international worker solidarity. Mm -hmm. The, The unification of the working class is the common key to every single national door that we could talk about. Whereas the right-wing version of nationalism is like, close the borders, fuck anybody who's outside of here. And, you know, we need to be walled off and uh, we need put another padlock on the door, Betty. Like that's the right-wing ideology with nationalism. So I I agree with your point. The only thing I would add, I think is that leftism just has this air about it of, uh, constant internationalism like we're we're always thinking about the unification of the proletariat beyond borders i think you made several good points there uh the first that i think you made without maybe even realizing it was that you said that um left-wing nationalist movements have been the most effective in like overthrowing colonizing governments colonizing settlers forever and that right-wing nationalist movements have also been the most effective and the most murderous, the most genocidal. And yeah. I think what you're getting to there is that nationalism creates the most effective movements. It does. And the difference that you're seeing is just the difference between right and left-wing ideology. And then you, you sort of made that point clear as well, because left-wing movements, even when they're nationalist, they're coming from a place of reclaiming. It's defensive as opposed to aggressive. And so it's going to inherently recognize that there are people in other countries who are facing the same predicament and therefore we're going to try to unite with them because you're, that's the goal is to overthrow oppressors. And the most effective way to do that is to unite. And you just extend that same principle. Once you have succeeded with your national borders, you extend that internationally. Whereas, you know, the right, because it is intentionally or inherently oppressive, genocidal, murderous, uh, bigoted, and, you know, discriminatory, the natural extension of that is to close off your borders and keep out people who are unlike you. At, at the very least, keep them out at most conquer them and just exterminate them. Yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's the, basically the two points there is just that nationalism is actually very effective at motivating people to make a movement and see it through. And that's the core difference between left and right. Yeah. And I mean, the, um, it, it ties back into the, the first chapter where, you know, we were talking about identity and not just identity as individuals, but identity as a nation. What is the common thread? between all constituents of a nation. That's, that's how a nation retains power, is you mm. have to have a shared culture. Without a shared culture, you don't have a nation. And you know, even for Americans, maybe that shared culture is built upon you know, a house of, of cards covered in shit, covered in lies. But at the same time, enough people believe it that it is a common identity. And I, yeah. I even see that in myself, is even though I renounced Judaism, I still have that component of my identity and it's not going anywhere. I am a Jewish person, whether or not I practice. Mm-hmm. But I think that's why nationalism is so powerful is because it can get people who otherwise in their daily lives are quite different to unify under very broad cultural terms like Cuban or American or Ukrainian or whatever and get them to mobilize almost solely on that basis, Mm -hmm. which is really impressive. 
Well, I think that's something that you cover a lot too, is like, that's based on fear. And I think that's probably what you're getting to in the next couple of questions. Yep. People are scared that they're going to lose their identity as a nation. And that motivates them better than anything else because fear is the biggest motivator. But go ahead with the, uh, the next question before I sidetrack us again. Well, it, it, it's exactly about that. So how does the fear of cultural loss inhibit progressive economic reforms? How does it tie into political parties and the, quote, fast food option of politics? The first thought when, I, uh, when you said inhibit progressive economic reforms, it just made me think of how even by the capitalist metrics of what is good, the fear of loss of your identity leads to less than rational behavior in a market, both from individuals and the market more broadly. Because, like, you know, as much as we would condemn taking advantage of refugees from other countries to use as, like, cheap labor, you know, that's mm -hmm. off the books, we can't pretend that the market, in its most rational form, wouldn't incentivize businesses to do exactly that, because it absolutely does incentivize them to do it. Sure. Um, the market incentivizes and leads to the legalization of child labor, for Christ's sake. Like, as we saw with the Supreme Court. So yeah, that's true. But so the only thing that seemingly prevents people from doing it are the fear of like state enforcement, like, you know, whatever immigration enforcement would come down in your business for hiring undocumented workers, or they're just their own personal objections to it, whether they're being moral or whether they're just racist and they don't want to hire, you know, immigrants. But overall, having a population that opposes immigration just isn't good economically. Like if you care about capitalist economies and you want them to succeed, then you should support immigration because I feel like that's been objectively proven to be good for a capitalist economy is to have more labor coming in. Like immigration is actually good for your economy. Yeah. So it's like, especially when you, they pay taxes and can't collect benefits, which yeah, is the case. Literally like, yeah. I know someone who is a, a police officer and had access to a database that civilians don't. And they looked up their own social security number to see if anybody else was using it for exactly that purpose, because People come in, you know, the country undocumented, they find someone's social security number and they can use that to work. Mm -hmm. um, and he found that three people were, were using his number. And I said, well, are you going to do anything about it? Like, so they don't steal your identity or something. He's like, no, they're paying into my payroll taxes and they can't collect any benefits. So they're just helping me out. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> yeah. So you're absolutely right. But that's, I mean, that's what I mean. Like opposing that, something that is purely beneficial financially to you and your interests, if you are nationalist of your country, you know, the U.S., um, to have these undocumented people coming into the country. Like, it's objectively good. And the only reason they're opposing it is racism. Like, they have all their pseudo-scientific arguments about how increasing the labor pool lowers wages or something. It's like, no, that's employers driving down wages. That's employers, like, Correct. purposely training more tech workers and telling everybody to learn to code so that the high-paid tech workers become a thing of the past because everybody knows how to code now, and now it's a low-paying job. Right. It's like... That's what's, you know, diluting the labor pool. It's not the immigrants because they're not taking the good jobs that you're worried about losing is my point. They're taking service jobs they're taking farming jobs, that kind of thing. But that's my point. I'm being long with about making is that it makes people make irrational market decisions because they're basing it on bigotry and fear and racism. Totally. I think the, the other thing to kind of add to it, just from my own perspective, growing up outside of it is, um, this is like kind of a weird concept, but you know, anything regarding civic psychology tends to be, but I think that the Christian majority in the U S regardless of whether they're lower class, middle class or affluent, whatever. I think that if you are a devout Christian in the U S there is an understanding that this is a Christian country. You may not mm -hmm. say that to yourself in your head, 
but you understand it on some sort of primal visceral level that you are in a country that caters to your religion you are in the majority right right now if i were I mean, to, it's on the fucking money it's on the fucking money uh so i think that for a lot of people who are christian in the united states if they saw a large sweeping economic reform headed their way like taxing billionaires more or getting rid of the current police structure that we have anything that shakes things up a lot they're afraid subliminally in that shakeup that suddenly Christianity won't be on top after it's mm -hmm. all said and done. And they would rather resist any kind of change whatsoever, even if it would benefit them out of this hypothetical yeah. fear that their God won't be on top anymore, which is ridiculous because 77% of the country is white. And I forget what percentage is Christian, but something stupid. Right. So like their their fear of a hypothetical cultural loss is blinding them from an overall reality that like, yeah, maybe we should liquidate Joel Osteen's estate and divvy it up amongst the people <laughs> like. Yeah. But that thought can't even be entertained. This is probably tangentially related at best, but like I, I thought recently about how people don't realize 100 years ago that Catholics were an outgroup. Like Catholics were a minority and they were yeah. very discriminated against. And just like what was considered white was very different. Like Irish people and Italian people were not white. Yeah. Like, so it's like as much as that gets touted by the right who wants to claim that, you know, th that's always like the stereotype, right? If you mention oppression of people of color, then some Irish guy comes in and says, oh, we were we were slaves or some like Italian guy says, like, we were slaves when we first got here off the boat. It's like nobody. <laughs> it was not the same as what happened to black people. Trust me. <laughs> like, no, not the same. But, you know, it does speak volumes that like when Kennedy became president, it was a big deal. And the Catholics were like, oh, shit, we have a president, you know, mm -hmm. or, or like the fact that the United States government killed the shit out of Mormons on multiple occasions. And that's why they ended up in Utah. You yeah. know, the, the, the specific American status quo is the Protestant Christian. Yeah. That the is wops. the specific one. Yes. And they are specifically the ones that I think are, you know, relating to this sort of, sort of fear of cultural loss. I think that Judaica does experience that to an extent, mm -hmm. um, especially now that Israel is under a lot of critical fire from, uh, you know, from people that are saying like, hey, y'all are, are fucked up for this. Yeah. And I think in that case, it's a lot of Jewish people who are afraid of, of losing the cultural identity that Israel gave to us, mm -hmm. which is a really weird one, because I'm very clearly not Israeli, but I could move there tomorrow and get a house. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. <laughs> you know, but I was taught growing up that 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 was a a solvent part of my identity. And I'm not going to lie to you, like unlearning that was really fucking hard. Yeah. Like it was hammered in there. I did want to uh, sort of answer the second part of your question, which is how does it tie into political parties and the fast food option of politics? This, um, let's see, fear of cultural loss. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, just tying it into immigration, like it still leads to less than rational decisions politically and decisions that are not in your own self-interest. So, like, Democrats are pro-immigration across the board. They really don't question it. That's just their stance. And it's mostly because the Republicans are so anti-immigration. And right. Democrats, I think, just don't want to look like racists. And I'm talking about voters, not the politicians themselves. So Democrat voters will just be very pro-immigration just by default. And then Republicans are anti-immigration 
And just like the liberal conservative dichotomy when it comes to firearm law, like you mentioned in the first chapter, even though Republicans are ostensibly pro-capitalism, they're anti-immigration, even though that's good for good for capitalism. Right. And the Dems supposedly being the party of the compassionate ones, like the, the bleeding heart liberals, they will support allowing immigrants to work under the table for exploitative wages because they can justify it in their minds that this is a good opportunity for them. And they'll be better off in the long run, just like they would. You're right. Yeah. They would do their mental gymnastics about ice camps under, you know, Obama and Biden as opposed to under Trump. But then also We're getting back to the housing camps, Mike. Yeah, it's not as bad now. You know, it's totally different this time. And then it'll be different again once Trump takes office in 2024. They'll be bad again. Oh, uh, God damn it. But um, again, just going back to the limits of what is acceptable debate. Like the first question is like there's no difference in either side when it comes to policy. But there's very heavily charged emotional debate about immigration and everything. But again, Dems, Repubs in office, it's the same atrocities either way. So it's like, it just goes right back to that whole, you feel like you're a better person. You can feel morally superior. And this is, um, I mention them all the time. And I don't know if our listeners have actually checked them out, but Matt, uh, Matt Chrisman from Chapo doing his um, grill stream. That's like the, the least produced podcast ever. He gets on, he records like with his built-in microphone on his laptop. His voice Sick. is all tinny. He literally broke his chair last week. He just like fell backwards, like totally embarrassed himself. <laughs> but he's still saying some of the best shit out there. And he harps a lot about this emotional involvement with politics that people have, where it's like the only two political parties we have anymore in America. You can be the asshole because you're the right winger, or you can be the pussy because you're a liberal. And it's just that battle of those two. But you still can't affect policy either way. Like you just are joining the team and the train is going. The train is on the track and you are not pushing it one way or the other. You're just right. arguing with other people who are like, watching the train go by and rooting for it to go one way or the other. And it's like, what the fuck are we really doing here? Like, right. But then at the same time, you, the way that you keep that train moving and, and keep that political centralization intact without people noticing is by, by imbuing it with these cultural identity senses that are related to emotion. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, you know, the, the liberal that sees something better about Biden's policy um, on immigration, which is non-existent, they don't want to lose that cultural identity of being someone who cares, right. of being someone that, that gives enough of a shit that they're trying to make it better. Mm. They can't square with the fact that that's not a real thing. That's their ego trying to preserve itself in the face of very obvious truths that this isn't working. Because the alternative is that they understand that it's not working and it scares the living shit out of them and makes them feel like an asshole for the last 10 years of their life. Well, that's actually a, a really good point that uh, he touches on in that same podcast. He talks about how, and I, I sort of mentioned it earlier when I was talking about the difference between late capitalism and then even later capitalism, which is like late capitalism would hide the exploitation from you, whereas later capitalism, you see it and you feel bad. But you still are participating because you have no fucking yes. choice. Like, but you feel <laughs> better so cool. about your, your bad feeling about it. Like somehow the bad feeling about it absolves you when you go to Walmart and buy the shit that you know was made by slave labor. Like you're still doing it, but you right. feel bad. Like, it's the BP executive in South Park just saying, we're sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is, this is the next question. Um, and this is a, a good one too, because it might spur some debate here. How does absolute dualism affect rational thought? Does it detract even from leftist spaces? For anyone who doesn't know what absolute dualism is, it's like saying the devil and God are good and evil, respectively. There's nothing in between. Whereas mitigated dualism 
is uh, understanding that good and evil are spectrums. A little nuance there. A little bit. So, I mean, that's what I wrote for when you said how absolute dualism affect rational thought. And I said, it just removes all nuance. And, you know, when you say, does it distract even from leftist spaces? The first thing I thought was 100%. Look at anarchists versus tankies or left cons versus tankies or liberals yeah. versus tankies. And I was like, well, it seems like tankies, uh, <laughs> tankies are a bit uh, controversial. <laughs> That's like the, the Willie, the Willie yeah, the Gardner meme. <laughs> That, that was first what I thought of. And then I thought of um, there was another meme where it was like, and I think they used China in the context, but it was like a troll face on China. And it was like, it seems our superiority has uh, caused a bit of controversy because there were all these like Western articles mad about China's COVID handling or something. And they're incredibly low numbers for their population. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. I mean, the only two options are either that lockdowns and masks and like enforcement of actual protocols works or that. The CPC is lying, but, you know, we know which one yeah. most Americans believe, so. I mean, it, it may even be a little bit of both in that case, but nothing changes the fact that America just really screwed the pooch on handling any of this. Yeah. Um, and they should be embarrassed and they should feel bad. But, you know, some of the things that I've done thought experiments with regarding absolute dualism and leftism is like, let's take, for example, um, I just finished writing about this the other day. So in the Soviet Union, well, first off, one misconception under communism is that you can't run a small business. You can, and to varying degrees, depending on what form of communism we're talking about. But the main takeaway is that, like, you can't do things like own a factory. You Mm -hmm. can't do things like own certain pieces of machinery that are better used for the common good. And you can't employ people while you're just sitting there doing nothing. So one of the ways that this, I'm going to make it short, but one of the ways that this incarnated in the USSR is like for a lot of family farms that used to employ farmhands, they were no longer able to employ farmhands. They were supposed to be part of the farmer's union, operate through state means to run their farm. Russia's fucking massive. So like when this was, when they tried to do this in places like Siberia, you know, it was a little hard to keep together. It was a little Mm -hmm. hard to staff and farmers that used to have a solvent group of workers that maybe they treated fairly, maybe they didn't. I'm sure there was a spectrum to that. They could no longer operate legally the way that they were allowed to in the past, Mm. which presented a problem. They couldn't operate at all. They're too far from the central government to have workers supplied to them, but they can't have the workers that they needed because it's against the law. What happens is the police end up seeing that they're still employing these people, Mm. and the police are like, all right, you know what? For $100 a month, I'm going to pretend I don't see this, mm-hmm. but I'll be back every month. <laughs> so then we start going through that whole cycle. So it makes me think that the absolute dualism, even in communism, of we can't have workers and owners and things like that, maybe isn't as well thought out as we would like to imagine. Maybe there is more nuance to it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't change the fact that like owners and workers are a bad concept. Yeah. Only that we need to be more flexible in our terminology and ideology surrounding it. I think you make a really good point. I like that a lot. I think that's a really cool story about the USSR and the how the farms operated because that really sheds a lot of light on it. But I think it gets to a good point, which is that you have to have that nuance because obviously the world is not so black and white. But I feel like the reason that there's such a lack of nuance in situations like that with communism. And we said this in one of the CUBE episodes, I think it was the one with Comrade Howell, 
And Ward was saying, like, if you are an anti-imperialist, you should not voice any criticism of Cuba right now while this SOS Cuba bullshit is going on. Not that you aren't valid for having it, not that there aren't valid reasons to criticize Cuba, but you shouldn't just do it right now because there's a controversy going on. The U.S. is obviously trying to make an imperialist move. So you should just be selective about when you voice those criticisms. And I think that's the case of, like, something like the USSR. Like, they should have been able to incorporate that $100 a month, take that as an official tax, you know, be able to make the system work. But at the same time, I think the realization is there in communism that if the right and capitalists and imperialists are always trying to get their foot in the door that way, they're always using nuance to slip in right-wing rhetoric. They're trying to slip in capitalist rhetoric. They're always trying to do that slippery thing. And I think that that is a big detriment for leftism just in general because, and what I wrote here was that it creates divisions among people who want to organize along class versus identity lines when in reality they should be doing both and working together. And that's where it, where it comes in with leftism. It's like, that would be the best possible thing, but both sides seem to be worried about what's going to happen after the fucking revolution that they're not working together now. It's like, what the fuck? Like, it drives me insane because yeah. like, anarchists we'll will say, yeah, <laughs> anarchists are like, oh, Tank, you just want to kill me after the revolution. And then like, Tankies are like, oh, you just want to side with the capitalists after the revolution. It's like, why don't we get the revolution first and then worry about that shit? Like, Right. Well, and, and to your point, like I already took my shot at commies. Now I'm going to take my shot at anarchists regarding because you brought up Cuba is, you know, the, the majority of, of well, not the majority, but a lot of anarchist spaces that I frequent, you know, they just want to see upheaval generally, which to an extent I'm with you. But this was a, a tweet thread that I just I had to save to my phone regarding Cuba because it's based as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, those who filled the power vacuum left behind were not anarchists, social democrats, or even liberals. They were right-wing reactionaries, gangsters, and neo-Nazis. This is the fate of any socialist country that the U.S. helps bring, quote, democracy to. How big of a fucking idiot do you have to be to think that the fall of communists in Cuba would mean the rise of democratic socialism? <laughs> the U.S. This guy went off. The U.S. doesn't want these countries to be prosperous. In fact, they want the opposite. They want cheap resources and labor. They want to extract as much as they can from these countries under the guise of economic development. Yeah. So, you know, for for anarchists, uh, if any happen to be listening, we always see the absolute dualism of revolution good. No matter what, as long as we're fucking shit up, it's good. And that's not true. I mean, Hong Kong proved it wasn't true. Cuba's currently proving it's not true. Like, if it's a revolution backed by capitalists, I don't want it. Yeah. Like, straight up. <laughs> Leave it the way it is. Dude, you probably saw it the other day, but some kid jumped into my comments on a, a meme that I posted, and he said something about the Hong Kong protests and why he supported those against China. And then Ew. people were, like, rightfully just tearing this kid apart, and he was saying some really dumb shit, and now, normally, I would have blocked this person as well, because like I said, I don't keep any right-wingers around or really even, like, uninformed people who just, like, show their ass in my comment section. But, like, right. I let him do it because it was so dumb that he was just really embarrassing himself, and I think he was actually instructive <laughs> to other people as to, like, what not to think. And the, one of them was so bad, I screenshotted it, but he, uh, he said something like, anti-imperialists are comrades, whether they're right or left-wing. And I was just like, mind blown face. I was just like, what the fuck? Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> I mean, what is a right wing anti-imperialist? Like, are they, that's just a fascist, isn't it? Or no, fascists still like monarchies. Like fascism is not really opposed to monarchism. Like, I want to know what they think yeah. a right wing anti-imperialist is. 
I mean, Liberty Hangout is a full-on monarchist at this yeah. point. So, like, I mean, at best, like, let's assume, understand. let's assume, like, an ANCAP is anti-imperialist. So this person is saying that they want to be allies with ANCAPs, like the helicopter boys, like the fucking Hans yeah. Hermann Hoppe f- <laughs> folks. Like, that's who you want to ally with as an anarchist? Like, fuck off. Hey, like, trust, trustworthy folks. Yeah. Definitely won't throw you out of a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're getting sidetracked again with, in, with uh, Instagram drama, as always. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the, the whole thing is to say, like, you know, the, the idea of absolute dualism, to me, is uh, it's a comfortable idea, and that's why every single mindset always gravitates towards it. It doesn't matter whether you're left or right wing. Um, and absolute dualism, to me, sucks. But I think that the, the secret weapon that leftists have is, again, dialectics. Mm-hmm. There is such a heavy focus on on dialectics, not just in materialism, but in every bit of leftist space is investigating the truth of opinions, seeing what's reasonable, what's what's rational and conceding when something is wrong. Mm -hmm. I think for any leftist that was born in the West specifically, the majority of us have experienced ego death a lot. Yeah. And that's helped us grow into better thinkers. So that's the way that we can fight this this dualistic idea um how are abstract and esoteric fears used in politics yeah so i think that's um that seems to be you know i don't want to presume but it seems to be one of the major points that your book is addressing is how just fear motivates people and what i put for this was that people will eagerly vote for or even materially support as in with their time and their effort a policy that is to their immediate detriment because they think it will protect some kind of grand national identity or even bigger, like a multinational identity that is specific to what they believe is their in-group, like the West or white heritage or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, again, going back to like the immigration thing where it hurts your economy to not support immigration or, you know, not supporting things that you deem socialism because your elite masters told you that that was socialism and you shouldn't support it. So very obviously things that are to your direct detriment, but you support it because you're afraid of losing what you think that you have, even though what you have is literally killing you. Yeah, it's it's insane when you put it that way. Like it's like looking into insanity in practice. Uh, I think Donald, you know, I think I told you last time that I started writing this before Trump was president and then he became yeah. president. And I was like, holy shit. I think Donald Trump is like the thesis for this question, because mm-hmm. this is a guy that had, he, he didn't run on a policy. He didn't have policies when he was in office. <laughs> he had no platform at all. No, just pure id. Just pure id. And half the time he wasn't even making complete sentences. <laughs> but because he had some sort of ostensible connection to Christianity. Yeah. Because he somehow pseudo-endorsed Christianity, which brilliantly did so without ever referencing something tangible from the Bible. I'm not sure he's even read it. Definitely not. Um, But he was able to capitalize off of the Christian majority by just being vaguely Christian. And to me, that is part of the abstract and esoteric fears, because these people are afraid of not just losing their cultural relevance, but they're afraid of God. They're afraid of God and the devil and space and everything Mm -hmm. because christianity is just a cult of fear i'm just going to be real about that but like donald trump being able to goad those people into his corner without actually saying anything that had to do with the economy or country 
Yeah. That's how esoteric fear is used in politics. He commanded a voting majority without actually doing anything. Well, I mean, this is not even going to be like an original point because I think everyone on the left has been saying this the last four years since Trump became the phenomenon that he is. But it's because he doesn't have any consistency or any kind of actual coherent principles that he can just embody the entire right because the right itself is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. Like just the way that, you know, when you were saying a minute ago, how, when I say it and when I describe what the right is and what they espouse, like it is insane. doesn't make any sense. It's like, yeah. And so if you just operate based purely on gut and you just know what the right is going to support or hate in any given moment, yeah, you can take over the whole party. If you have no obligation to adhere to reality or consistency or any like actual beliefs whatsoever. And then also if the people who follow you, don't hold you accountable for that, which they don't because they love it. Like they need, they need that guy who doesn't adhere to any norms and isn't afraid to just be the racist asshole so that they can all throw their weight behind that and then say, oh, well, I'm not racist, but I still support this guy because he says other things that I like. There, there's always that out. Right. He speaks his mind. Yeah. That kind of shit. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think it bleeds over too into, um, I know I'm referencing a lot of memes tonight, but I love them. Uh, I mean, that's, there's like, like, that's why we're here, right? <laughs> it really is. There's, so there's this video of um, the top panel is right-wing conspiracies, and it's like seraphim angels, and then it pans over to aliens, then it pans over to planets, and it pans over to like the eye and the pyramid, and it's got the guy doing like the face with it, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like the, the shocked, um, surprise face, yeah. The, the sword face. And then it's like, yeah. And then the left-wing column below it is like left-wing conspiracy theories and it's like the cia assassinated this guy and it's just like yes we did yeah um yeah that's a FOIA document <laughs> but like again it's i think that when i say abstract and esoteric fears one of the big things that i try and drive home in this book is that fear is not always something that we recognize as being negative and we kind of covered that in the notes when I told like what actually happened with Pocahontas versus the Disney telling of it mm-hmm. is having fear can also mean having a feel good Disney movie that is a revision of something horrible that happened. Fear can mm-hmm. make you feel good because fear is where you avoid looking at the truth. So it's not always a negative feeling that you have. Fear can be very positive feeling because what you're doing is avoiding something. Right. So it's kind of a placebo in that way. That's a really cool insight. It's, it's, it's a mind fuck. So when we see right-wingers, you know, coming up with these ideas that, let's be real, would be great movies about, like, global cabals and blood sacrifices and reptilians and shit. Hyperborea. When they... Yeah, all that shit. <laughs> like, you can't tell me it doesn't feel good to think about. It's fun. Oh, yeah. It's sci-fi. I missed that. Like, I missed that I, age when I was into those conspiracy theories before. Again, they all got subsumed into QAnon. Right. Like I, I went down that rabbit hole too, and honestly, in a perverted way, I was kind of enjoying myself a hell of a lot more than I do now. <laughs> yeah, thinking about politics. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a fear placebo because it's fun to think about. It's fun to think that like you know, Donald Trump is going to take on the cabal and he's playing 4D chess mm-hmm. against the, the Illuminati or whatever. Like, that's an entertaining-ass narrative. Yeah. You know? But it's not real. And it is based still off of fear. It's a lot more comforting than reality, for sure. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so moving on to the next question. This one's, I spent some of this chapter talking about taxation. So this is sort of a loaded question, but I wanted to get your opinion on it. Yeah. Let's discuss taxation here in the United States. If private companies can lobby for policies at our expense, is that representation? I mean, I feel like that's like a, it's like an obvious no. You know what I mean? Like it's almost. It's a loaded question. <laughs> immediately what I thought of was just like, you know, why don't the tri-corner hat LARPers, like all the founding fathers guys, why don't they see that situation? <laughs> like, why don't they realize like the ta- they literally got taxation without representation bumper stickers, like, and they don't understand that like they don't have representation in their taxation now. In, in this supposedly free country because of the way that the tax structure works as far as being so in favor of corporations? Yeah, well, dude, so like, uh, I'll share a little bit about like what, what I deal with on a daily basis. We were talking about this at the beginning of the episode, but I run a small business, which is part of why like, you know, I do shit like research what small businesses were like in the USSR. But so my marginal tax rate is around 28% federal. Mm. My state tax rate I believe is 7%. And then I also pay sales tax, which is 2.5%. So if you add all that together, every time I make a sale in my small business, I actually owe around 40% of that to the government. So that's almost half of my income from every sale that I make. Yeah. So that's really something that's tough to reconcile with when companies like Amazon pay no taxes and then lobby the government, despite the fact that they don't pay taxes for policies that ostensibly affect everyone but them. Right. And meanwhile, for me, I'm living off of 60% of what I deserve from my small business, and I don't receive health care. Yeah. Uh, I don't receive anything tangible from social programs. I get nothing for 40% of my income. And then I, you know, that's passed on to the clients who then I lose clients because I have to upcharge to make sure that I account for taxes. And you would think all of this would make me more right wing, but it doesn't. Because you're not a fucking moron. Like, because you don't think that the whole problem is the government. You realize that the government is the tool of the corporations. Like, again, going back to the AR-15 metaphor, if you realize that the AR-15 is the tool and what's bad is the intent behind it because someone is shooting a person rather than a target, you should realize that the government is being used malevolently by the corporations for their own intent rather than to represent you as it's ostensibly supposed to do. And so you just have to fix the government because, and again, not to fucking harp on dunk again, but like if you talk to a libertarian and you ask them like, what is the, what is to be done in that situation? They would say remove the government, but it's like, what do you think is going to happen in a situation where you remove government, you remove regulation, you remove any recourse that individual citizens have against corporations and whatever they want to do? Those people are going to get exploited at, at a certain point and they're going to band together because even libertarians, as dumb as they are, should realize that collective action is what actually gets things done. Like you are not going to be able to do anything individually with your AR-15, no matter how cool it is, no matter how many optics and lasers you have on it. You're not going to be able to do anything against Amazon's private army and you're going to have to band together. And when those people get banned yep. together, if they don't want to do actual just hand to hand combat, if they want to do something like that is diplomatic in any way. They're going to have to form something that looks a lot like a government. They're going to, that's what is going to happen. Like it's going to just naturally emerge because that's what humans do when they get together and they want to work out like, okay, everyone in this area is going to stick to this agreed upon set of rules. Like that's what fucking government is. Like that's the basic creation of a state. And I don't know. I feel like ANCAPs definitely don't get it. Left-wing anarchists, maybe they get it sometimes. (laughs) 
And it depends on who you're talking to, that's for sure. I, you know, as Sterling put it best, he, say, he said exactly what you're saying is government is a tool. Yeah. That's all it is. And it, that, a tool can be used for many things. A shovel can dig a hole or it can bash someone's head in. Depends on what you want to do with it. And I think for, for like the anarchist camp, there are some that just think that the existence of a state period is not warranted. I think the existence of a state period is a necessary evil and it should be treated as such. Yeah. But, you know, like, would I be as mad about being taxed out the ass if I didn't have to pay health insurance premiums? Mm -hmm. I'd certainly be happier about it. Or if you just got something, like if you got that health insurance for it, instead of just that money going to bomb brown kids in Yemen. Correct. Or, or even if it went to like housing people in my neighborhood, like even if it didn't actually help me mm -hmm. in any way, if it went to um, reparations for the black community, if it went to putting homeless people in, in permanent housing, permanent, not a week in a motel. Yeah. Cause Asheville does that shit all the time. If it went to our community, I wouldn't be as mad either, but it doesn't. It goes to what, like what you said, bombing brown kids, corporate subsidies, shit, shit that just doesn't help. I'm actually fine with being taxed at a high rate if it actually does something good for anyone, really. It just never does here. Yeah. Because government bad. Not because capitalism, but because government Cause, bad. <laughs> right, exactly. Because we didn't have robust social programs in the mid-century or anything. Yeah. You know, back when they were taxing the ultra wealthy at 70%. <laughs> Which, side note, when all these fucking conservative boomers get on the nostalgia train, I'm like, you do realize that Jeff Bezos would have been taxed into poverty in 1956, like right? The, the top effective tax rate was 90% at that time. Like, you just want the racism back. Let's be real. <laughs> that's all. That's what they want, dude. They want the racism and they want the submissive housewife. They want that trad wife so bad, dude. <laughs> right. You want apple pie and a German shepherd on every black dude. If they have to, like, literally destroy America, they're going to get that trad wife in a, in a sundress. <laughs> Meme culture's done a lot for us, I feel. Like, it, it really has. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, if you watch Mad Men... Like, Don Draper's lifestyle looks a little appealing. You do, like, just getting to bang, like, every girl in the neighborhood and then also have that smoking hot wife to come home to who takes care of everything for you. Like, if you want to be a lazy asshole and just get drunk at work all the time, like, that's, that is the lifestyle to live. And if you think that, as a white guy, that's going to be your lifestyle, then I could see why you would idolize that. But if you're realistic, you should realize you're going to be, like, the janitor. Like, if you yes. really, like, rewind the clock, like, you're going to be, like, that guy, he's the waiter in the club, and he's, like, giving him advice on how to, how to do his best ad campaign. But it's, anyway, I'm, I gotta stop getting sidetracked. Let's get to this last question, because I actually ranted a lot for this one. Okay, cool. What did you fear you couldn't understand? So what was too intimidating um, of a subject that it made you think that, nope, I'd rather be ignorant? I'm curious, um, I kind of want to see what you would put for this first, before I say mine. I would say, um, honestly, probably finance. Okay. It's a very scary subject, and we don't, I didn't learn much about it in school. I didn't learn how to file taxes. or I mean, I, I left it up to professionals, and I didn't know what inflation was. Sounded scary. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know dick about money. I didn't think I was smart enough to understand it. That's literally what I wrote. I put economics. <laughs> I mean, that's, if you're going to get into political economy, like if you 
at any point in your, you know, teens, twenties, whatever, up till now, you start getting into the area that we're in where you realize things are wrong in some way and you start trying to research why, you're going to either get into political economy or just batshit conspiracy theories. There's the only two directions you can really go. <laughs> yep, that's the fork. And so economics is what I put because I still definitely don't understand a lot of the technical details of economics as far as like the basic economics, bro. Like, but I understand enough to know general economic principles. Like I understand those. And more importantly, the belief system behind the quote unquote science of capitalist economics. Like I understand how that works because I think of it almost as like um, meta economics, like basically understanding like that economics as a science will always operate on the assumptions that property ownership is valid. Like you were saying earlier, like it always operates on that assumption that private property is valid and should be rewarded as much as, if not wildly more so than labor. Mm -hmm. um, but also that capitalism is the only viable system while ignoring massive externalities, like the fact that it's literally ending humanity. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's kind of a big one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about externalities, whether it's plastic or asbestos or whatever, but like, yeah, climate change is the big one. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think directly relating to economics and finance, and I'm, I'm not totally disregarding long-winded terms for complex financial instruments. You know, that I'm not saying that it's all bullshit, but I, I will say this much is like, I think that the language behind economics and finance and our lack of education in tandem allow for capitalism to operate on like a super unabated level. So like mm. derivatives, for instance, that's one of those terms that I didn't really want to know. Even I think I started reading about it in 2009 after the crash happened. And I was like, all right, what the fuck were these things? They're debt packages. They, they strap together car debt, student loan debt, um, house debt, and just put them in packages that they sell. They sell debt to a third party and then tell them that in exchange for taking on that debt, they will receive a percentage of interest at a pre-designated time. Mm -hmm. Which, if that doesn't make sense to you, that's the fucking point, mm -hmm. is it doesn't make sense. But they're able to conceal this logical fallacy because you're in a room with all these suits who are telling you all these different buzzwords like uh, relative strength index or APR yield or blah, blah, blah. That, yes, those words have, have important meanings, I suppose. But at the same time, to the average Joe or even the average Joe with a lot of money that's trying to invest, you know, beef up their retirement or whatever, they're getting conned. And this is a way to create wealth in an unnatural way. Mm -hmm. you're, you're creating wealth out of debt instead of creating wealth out of labor, which is where all wealth right. stems from. Yeah. So, you know, I, I see this mass misunderstanding of economics because I think the answer you and I had might be the most common one. Probably, yeah. I see that as a tool of the capitalist uh, aristocrat and he hegemony to maintain their rule. Oh, it absolutely is. It's like the priesthood of the religion of capitalism. Yeah, the banker. Yeah. So I, um, the other thing I, this is where I will rant, but I think you will follow me very closely with this because you'll get it. Do it So up. I relate economics to music theory. And Sick. I don't know how much you got into music theory because your instrument has no notes, uh, fucking drummer, but. <laughs> <laughs> Shade. 
<laughs> That's the only shade I could throw at drummers because I'm always impressed by their independence of their limbs and everything. But anyway, so you learn music theory and you learn like your scales and your notes, et cetera, when you're learning an instrument. And it makes you a better musician and you're able to like better express yourself with your instrument after you learn it. Um, but a lot of that is still due more to the fact that you were playing your instrument during that process of learning that stuff. You were literally just practicing. Because what music theory does, and let me know if you agree with this definition, what music theory does is describe what someone is doing in a piece of music after the fact. And it breaks it down in a way that explains why it's coherent and why it sounds good. But the thing is still that people break all the quote-unquote rules of music theory all the time. And they still make good-sounding music doing it. So the rules are, themselves are like subject to change or being updated as music goes on. But the reason I even mention that is because most likely if you had just played your instrument without even learning all the descriptive language around it, you would have still gotten a lot better at it. You would have gotten more fluent in the instrument. And if you focused on writing music, you would have still gotten better at doing that, whether it's improvising or songwriting or whatever. Yes. Um, but my point is that just like music theory, economics as a study describes what has already happened. And it doesn't work that well in predicting things necessarily. And I would argue that in the case of economics, just like music theory can't predict how people are going to be creative, and just like music theory does not make you more creative, doesn't make you better able to create, it just, again, describes what was already being done. Economics is bad at predicting because it's not coherent. It's not holistic. It's not even an honest view of how human beings operate in markets. Like the fact that crashes are seen as an unexpected anomaly, despite how often they happen, and at this point they're almost regular, yeah. Um, right there, that says to me that Marxism is a much better way of analyzing macroeconomics than any degree in economics, because right. Marxism at least explains not only why these crashes are built into capitalism, but exactly why they continue to happen, as well as the long-term damage of endless expansion, whereas quote-unquote basic economics will operate in this fantasy universe where you can infinitely produce and consume in a finite space with no adverse consequences whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, you're fucking dead on. Like, people don't have to confront the idea that crashes shouldn't be part of the system. We, yeah. we imagine this. We collectively imagine this. Economics are not like gravity. They don't exist unless we manifest them. So if we don't like a system where crashes are a natural part of said system, we should fucking change it. Right. We yeah. have control to do that. Um, yeah, you're, I love that comparison to music theory. You should at the very least recognize that they are happening regularly and then deal with that reality. You know what I mean? Like right. it, it doesn't, it, I don't understand the last 40 years of people staying in denial about crashes and saying, oh, these are, these are irregular things. It's like, what, every 10 years is irregular? Anyway, but go ahead. Do you, you, you like the comparison <laughs> to music theory? <laughs> no, but you're right. It's literally every 10 years. There's the yeah. savings and loan in the eighties, the tech bubble in the nineties, the fucking the housing in 2008 and now covid uh yeah. like it's literally every 10 years and every time it's pikachu surprise face who could have seen this like, coming <laughs> but yeah so that it reminded me of um the charlie parker quote uh, learn the changes then forget them you know the, mm -hmm. the more time you spend playing with thought experiments on on how supply works and how demand works and and how things would make sense the more you start seeing things that don't make sense for what they are, I would say mm -hmm. second to economics, the thing that most people fear they can't understand and just ignore is geopolitics. Yeah. Or, I mean, history is tied into that, but, you know, even what we were talking about with the anarchists and a lot of what they're, you know, endorsing with Cuba, you know, if you took two seconds to understand 
what exactly that post-revolution would be based on Cuban history, based on who's backing the opposition, et cetera, you wouldn't support this. Yeah. So what's, what's stopping you from learning about that? Is it that you don't have time, which if so, I wish you had more time, or is it that you don't want to dig back into Cuban history, you know, all the way to the fifties or beyond? Yeah. You don't want to dedicate the effort or are you afraid of it? Are you afraid that you won't remember all the dates and you won't remember all the names? And what's the point of reading it anyway, if I can't remember all the stuff and, you know, speaking on my own account, like I'm, I'm still intimidated by a lot of like what I read and learn because I'm afraid I'm not going to retain it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty big motivating factor for a lot of people is like they don't want to understand what happened in Iraq because they don't want to dig all the way back to like the Iraq Iran thing or much less than that Iraqi independence. It's not, it's not even that these things are like so complicated. They're beyond one person's understanding. It's just that, it's a little more complicated than what people have time for in their daily lives. Like while you were saying that, I'm just imagining like the path to changing the world is to make your whole process just a little bit boring, a little bit complicated, a little bit hard to understand so that people don't look into it too much. Because what's leading me down that thought process is like you could have an entire conspiracy right in front of people's faces. And the real conspiracy is not to hide it, to like make it secret or hide it away. It's to just make it a little more complicated than people are willing to look into. And then they mm. just don't bother. Like they get to a certain point and then they just give up because it's, it's annoying. But then also in thinking that I realized that that inherently gives the advantage to the state because the state can make things a little complicated, a little hard, but they still have the air of legitimacy, the assumption of legitimacy. Right. Whereas like you can't take over the state by making like obtuse bureaucracies uh, because you are already assumed to be illegitimate from the jump because you are not the, the state. You know what right. I mean? They have the monopoly on, on legitimacy, but at the same time, who in their free time really wants to thumb through FOIA uh, you exactly. know, exposés? And, and even at the same time, like there is, for me, a recognition of, of a degree of privilege to that because like, you know, I'm, I'm self-employed. I came from a family that, you know, had some assets and, and I went to college. I have time to read shit. Not everyone yeah. has time to read shit. You know, so like there is an element of privilege to education. Um, so, it, you know, it's not just fear. It's also what you said. It's it's time. A lot of people don't have time. Like, you know, if I had to work like I did in my early 20s with two part time jobs, all I wanted to do back then was just go home and drink a beer. Yeah. Fuck pulling up, a, you know, government archives and reading through them, you know. Yeah, um, it was easier to to imagine reptilians were behind all this. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, did you want to wrap it up there, or do you have anything else you want to get to? No, I think that's about it. But uh, yeah, dude, yeah, I I really appreciate you not only reading it, but also like just kind of shooting the shit with me on these questions. It's fun. I was just thinking how much I was enjoying these discussion episodes because. There's so many things that are just rattling around in my brain that I want to get out. And like, I tend to find opportunities in these questions because like you said, they're very thought provoking questions. So you can like, you can tie in almost anything to these questions and it's all really, yeah, it's just cool to talk about and think about. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, again, it's the selling point to me on leftism is dialectics, which is exactly what we're doing. It's yeah. investigating the truth of opinions and uh, you know, whether they relate to people or nations or whatever, that's, that's what I find so valuable about it. Yeah.
All right. Well, since this is a Patreon episode, I will just thank our Patreon subscribers. Um, I'm not even going to like go through the whole list because you guys know who you are. You're the only ones listening to this. So thank you, as always, for uh, giving us your support. We, I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. Um, yeah, all right. Shit. So that uh, will wrap it up for this episode. And uh, join us next time for the Chapter 3 reading, which I think Jaron will be doing. And then I'll take Chapter 4. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Thanks, man. I'll see you later. See you, everyone. Take it easy.